This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Good morning and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. The podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith and as always, I will be your host. Thank you so much for joining us this week at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This episode is episode 191 entitled Making Sense of Hebrews chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. In this week's episode, we will explore a difficult passage for biblical unitarians, which is Hebrews chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. This passage, at least on the surface, appears to make Jesus out to be the creator of the heavens and the earth. From what passage is the author of Hebrews quoting, and how does this citation fit into the ongoing argument of Hebrews chapter 1? How have biblical Unitarians traditionally interpreted Hebrews 1.10, And are those interpretations overall persuasive? How are we to make sense of the roles of creator attributed to Jesus, especially in light of the argument of Hebrews as a whole? How does the passage lay the groundwork for further theological discussion within the narrative of the book of Hebrews? And what does it mean to call Jesus Lord in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is initial impressions and considerations of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Now, I will say at the outset that this is an extremely difficult passage, and there's been a lot of disagreement on this passage, and I have even changed my mind on how to interpret this over the years. So I'm not going to come in with a heavy-handed tone suggesting that my way is the correct way and everyone else is incorrect. I've been mistaken before and it's very likely that I have a few things wrong. So I'm going to make suggestions and observations on ways that I am currently persuaded to interpret this particular passage. But that might change in five, 10 years. But that's the point of this podcast, is to start conversations. So let's begin by looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. I will cite the passage. It says, quote, And in the beginning, O Lord, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing, like a cloak, you will roll them up, and like clothing, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never end. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Now within Hebrews chapter 1, beginning from verse 5 and going all the way to verse 13, the author of Hebrews is citing a variety of passages from the Old Testament, specifically from the Greek version, from the Septuagint. And here, in verses 10 through 12, he is quoting from Psalm 102. 
specifically Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, but he's quoting out of the Greek version, out of the Septuagint. So let me read an English version of the Septuagint of Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. It sounds very similar to what we have in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. So Psalm 102 says this, In the beginning, O Lord, you lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all wear out as clothing, and as a cloak you will roll them up, and they shall be changed, but you are the same, and your years will never end. So let me give some initial impressions of Hebrews 1, 10-12, and the passage from which the author of Hebrews is quoting. So we can see that the passage begins with this phrase, in the beginning. And so we can see that there are acts of creation. There is the laying the foundation of the earth and the heavens being the works of the subject's hands. And this seems to be looking back to the original creation, to the old creation, the creation that some might call the Genesis creation. It's pointing back to in the beginning. It's talking about acts of creation that have happened in the past tense. Another impression is that there seems to be a pretty major emphasis on the enduring of the Lord, the Lord being the subject of this passage. The Lord will remain, and his years will never come to an end. That seems to be a pretty major emphasis in this passage. Now, the contrast with the longevity of the subject is the limited nature of creation. We can see in the passage that creation will wear out. And this limited nature of the created order is likened unto a garment, a common item that everyone knows is limited and frail and clothing doesn't last forever. Another analogy that can be observed deals with the casual nature of creation in contrast to the enduring years of the subject. Creation is so casual that it's just going to be rolled up like a cloak. Like an everyday cloak, creation is just going to be rolled up, and that's a common image that the readers would understand. Now, there's a pretty important comment about creation in that it's going to be changed. And again, when I'm talking about creation, the text says the heavens and the earth. There is a finite nature of the perishable creation that's going to be changed in the future. And it is pretty clear. It says they will perish. The earth and the heavens will perish, but the Lord will remain. So whatever creation this is, this creation is on its way to ruin. It's on its way to perishing. It does talk about being changed, but this creation is on its way to perishing. Now, while the original reference to the Lord, the subject of this quoted psalm, is God, specifically in Psalm 102, we should not automatically assume that the author is 
intending to carry forth that particular identity from Psalm 102 over into its new application in Hebrews chapter 1, to where the quotation is used to refer to the Son. Now, the reapplication of Old Testament citations for new purposes has actually been the norm within the catena of quotations in Hebrews chapter 1. I want you to listen how the author is taking these Old Testament citations that have one particular referent, and the author will reuse them in this new situation, in this new argument, for a different referent. So in chapter 1, verse 5, the cites 2 Samuel 7.14, which was originally referring to King Solomon. It wasn't referring to Jesus. But in Hebrews chapter 1, it is referring to Jesus. It's pretty clear that Solomon and Jesus are not one and the same person. The author was not citing 2 Samuel 7.14 to say that Jesus is Solomon. Chapter 1, verse 5 also quotes Psalm 2.7, which originally was referring to David, but now in Hebrews 1, it is referring to Jesus. It's pretty clear that David and Jesus are not the same individual. Chapter 1, verse 6, cites the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, which originally was a summons for the heavenly angels to worship the Father, but now the heavenly angels are called to worship the Son. Clearly, the Father and the Son are not the same person. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, quotes Psalm 45, verses 6-7, which originally was referring to a married Davidic king, probably referring to Solomon. But originally, it wasn't referring to Jesus. Jesus is clearly not Solomon, nor is Jesus a married Davidic king, at least in the literal sense. So when we see Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10-12, through 12, citing a passage from Psalm 102, to where the Lord is in reference to God, this is not likely intending to collapse God and Jesus as the same person. By giving the quotation a new referent would actually be in accordance with the author's regular use of Scripture thus far, rather than being an exception to the rule. So we shouldn't assume that just because a God passage is quoted of Jesus, that the author is assuming that you would conclude that Jesus is God. We should also consider that the author of Hebrews is drawing from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew text. And a very interesting point is that while the Septuagint has a reference here to the Lord, in the Hebrew, there isn't a referent there. There is no reference to Yahweh or to anybody. The Septuagint has actually added the noun Lord in its translation of the Hebrew. So we shouldn't assume that this is some sort of Yahweh passage that's now being cited of Jesus because the noun Yahweh wasn't even present within the Hebrew original. So those are some initial impressions and observations 
of Hebrews chapter 1. So let's move on to our second point, which is interacting with biblical Unitarian readings of Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12. So we have a passage that originally referred to God, having laid the foundations of the heavens and attributing the earth to the work of his hands. And it's now attributed to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. So on the face of it, it is a deeply troubling passage for biblical Unitarian theology. So I want to talk about some of the ways in which biblical Unitarians have decided to deal with this passage. And I want to offer my thoughts on why some of these interpretations don't persuasively explain the text as it stands. At least to me, they don't persuasively explain the text. So one of the ways in which biblical Unitarians have sought to understand the reference in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10 is to say that, well, it's not actually about Jesus. It's actually about the Father. So this interpretation tries to avoid all the problems of the passage by saying that the quotation used in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12 is not referring to Jesus at all, but these interpreters would say that it actually refers to God the Father. Well, that's, that's one way to deal with it, but this is clearly not what the author of Hebrews intended. Clearly. The entire argument thus far in Hebrews chapter 1 has been to contrast Jesus with the heavenly angels in order to demonstrate from Scripture that Jesus is greater than the angels. So the argument thus far has been pretty crystal clear, spanning from verses 5 going all the way to verse 13 in Hebrews chapter 1. So in Hebrews 1.5, it deliberately contrasts Jesus from the angels by attributing to Jesus the royal title, Son of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, this indicates that when God exalted Jesus to heaven, all of the heavenly angels were to worship Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, this passage speaks of the finite nature of the angels, and it calls the heavenly angels winds and flames of fire. And then the passage is going to contrast the angels in chapter 1, verse 8, with the enduring throne of Jesus. His throne will last forever and ever. Jesus will reign forever and ever while the angels are temporary. And then in chapter 1, verse 10, our present passage, this is going to continue that train of thought by deliberately saying that this subject, the Lord, quote, will remain, end quote, and that his years will never come to an end. So to suggest that Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, is actually about the Father would actually be completely nonsensical to the author's argument and it would disrupt the contrast between the heavenly angels and Jesus. To actually make this passage about the Father wouldn't actually serve to further the argument, namely the argument that Jesus is greater than the angels. How would talking about the Father's enduring life in years not coming to an end help contribute to an argument that says that Jesus is greater than angels? 
It's completely out of place. It's nonsensical. It would just be a waste of time. And just to make sure, I checked a dozen modern commentaries on the book of Hebrews, and I couldn't find a single scholar who thinks that the author of Hebrews intended chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 to be understood as a reference to the Father. They all, and I mean all of them, said that it's a reference to Jesus. So I don't think that by reattributing Hebrews 1, 10 through 12 to the Father away from the Son is the persuasive way of interpreting the passage. Another way that biblical Unitarians have interpreted this passage is by saying that, well, it is about the Son, but the creation that is discussed is actually the new creation, not the old Genesis creation. Now, this interpretation accepts the fact that the subject really is the Son of God, it really is Jesus, but it interprets the heavens and the earth as the new heavens and the new earth. It's the new creation. And I know this interpretation pretty well because I held it for many years, and I even taught it in many occasions. But even I have to admit that I was really doing everything that I could to make the text about the new creation rather than the Genesis creation. I just couldn't understand how it possibly could be that Jesus in this passage could be understood as being described with roles of the creator in the creation in the past tense. I just, I couldn't understand that. So I did everything I could to make the passage say something quite different. I wasn't objectively trying to interpret the text. I have to admit, I had an agenda. I had an axe to grind. Now, these were some of the arguments that I made. I made the argument that Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, a little bit later, says that the author is talking about the world to come. So, if the author is talking about the world to come, then the reference to the heavens and the earth couldn't be the Genesis creation. That's the argument that I made. Now, the problem with this argument is that it's not altogether clear that the reference to world in chapter 2, verse 5, the world to come, is the same referent as the heavens and the earth in chapter 1, verse 10. We have different words that are used. And the clearer connection in chapter 2, verse 5, with the world to come, seems to be with the same Greek word, ekomeni, that shows up in chapter 1, verse 6. Please see the previous episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast for all the details on this. So chapter 2 and verse 5 is referring to a very specific world, using a very specific Greek noun that only elsewhere appears in chapter 1, verse 6. Also, the wording in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, seems quite clear that this creation has already taken place. You can see that the laying the foundations of the earth and the heavens being the works of the subject's hands are both written in the past tense, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. This isn't a future act of creation of the new heavens and the new earth. It is a praise of the already created heavens and the earth. Another argument that I used to make in favor of this being the new creation is that the Greek version of the citation in Psalm 102 
the Greek version of the Hebrew has actually made quite a lot of changes that thrust the passage into a future orientation. So the Greek translator of Psalm 102, instead of looking backwards to the old creation, would supposedly be looking forward to the new creation. Well, this is, it's true that the Greek version of Psalm 102 has made some pretty significant changes to what the Hebrew has said. And the Greek did interpret some of the passages as referring to future events. But none of those reinterpretations actually affect the actual verses that are cited by the author of Hebrews. And two things could actually be true at the same time. The Septuagint version can orient the reader forward to look to what is on the horizon, and he can also comment on the original creation of the heavens and the earth. There's no reason why both of those cannot be true at the same time. They are not mutually exclusive. Another argument I used to make is that the creator of Psalm 102 is God, and the author of Hebrews would never ever attribute the role of creator to someone other than God. So it couldn't refer to the Genesis creation. Now, in principle, this is true, but we need to nuance it a bit because of what the author of Hebrews has already said in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. To where God made the world through the Son. Namely, God has made the world through wisdom. I'm going to speak a little bit more on this in our next point. But my point is that the Son who is understood as God's wisdom, has already been described in terms of creation earlier in Hebrews chapter 1. Now, I do think a good argument can be made that the role of the creator was actually not intended by the author when citing Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Because that actually doesn't contribute to his argument in Hebrews chapter 1. I'll have actually a little bit more to say about this in our fourth point. Now, I will say that the major piece of evidence that actually forced me to reconsider my position, namely the position that Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, is about the new creation rather than the old creation, is the seemingly clear comment that, according to Hebrews 1.11, the heavens and the earth will perish. The heavens and the earth are going to perish. They're going to be changed but they're going to perish. This does not sound like the new heavens and the new earth. It sounds like the old creation. The old creation is finite. The old creation is perishing. It, it's in need of change. The new creation is not going to perish. That's the point of the new creation. It's going to live on forever. It's going to be an eternal kingdom that is never going to come to an end. But the old creation is certainly in decline. It's perishing, and it is in need of of renewal. So I can't get around the fact that the heavens and the earth that are described here are perishing. And that can't be a reference, at least as far as I can see, to the new creation. Now the issue of Jesus being described in terms usually associated with the Creator are problematic. I think that's one of the biggest concerns for biblical Unitarians. But I do think that there are some convincing explanations for this that don't require us to ignore the reference to the Son 
nor to move away from the description of what seems to be the Genesis creation. So let's move to our third point. Point number three is considering wisdom Christology. Considering wisdom Christology. So Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10 says, In the beginning you, O Lord, laid the foundations of the earth. And I'm very interested in this verb for laying the foundations. Okay, it's a pretty rare verb in the New Testament. Uh, and it is the Greek verb thimelioo. Okay, now this Greek verb uh, thimelioo also appears in a passage involving God creating the world with wisdom. In Proverbs 3.19, in the Septuagint, the same Greek verb is used, thimelioo. It says in Proverbs 3.19 that God, by wisdom, founded the earth using the same verb. Now, we know that the author of Hebrews has depicted Jesus in terms of wisdom Christology in the opening three verses of the book of Hebrews. In fact, there are four particular places in which Jesus is described in terms that were formerly used of God's wisdom. I argued there that the likely possibility is that the author views Jesus in terms of wisdom with a typological understanding. Wisdom is a type of Jesus, and thereby, due to the interpretation of typology, the author can interchange the two references. So in chapter 1, verse 2, the author depicts Jesus as the wisdom through whom God made the world. God is a creator, but God made the world through wisdom. Wisdom is understood typologically as Jesus. Now, Jesus is understood to be the final embodiment of wisdom. So it's not hard to see how Jesus and wisdom became interchangeable in what was probably a typological hermeneutic. We can already see this in the writings of the Apostle Paul. So my suggestion is that if the author of Hebrews has already described the creation of the world as having occurred by God using wisdom and if Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10 speaks about creation with the verb, themelioo, meaning to lay the foundation, which is the same verb that appears in the Septuagint of another description of God creating through wisdom, then it is certainly probable, and I think pretty likely, that the same wisdom Christology is intended here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus understood as the antitype of God's wisdom is described with various creation terminology. Jesus is laying the foundations of the earth because Jesus is the embodiment of the wisdom and God laid the foundations of the earth through wisdom in a similar passage. So this solution, and I have to admit it's just a suggestion, it actually allows for the creation in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, to refer to the Genesis creation. And it also takes seriously the reference to the Son as the subject. So it's a proposed solution that doesn't remove the creation out of the context of the old creation and shifts it into the future, and it doesn't remove the Son as the referent. So I propose that for your consideration.
Let's move on to our fourth point. Point number four, planting seeds for upcoming themes. So when we place the quotation of Psalm 102 into Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, and we set that in the wider argument of the book of Hebrews as a whole, it becomes apparent that the passage in Hebrews 1.10 was intended to lay the groundwork, lay the foundation for other arguments that are going to show up later. Let me talk about these arguments. So we can see in our passage, Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12, that the creation is growing old. And we learn later that the old covenant is growing old. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13, it says that the old covenant is becoming obsolete and growing old and ready to disappear. Now the verb growing old is the Greek verb paleo, and it's the same verb that's used in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 11. So we can see that there is something that's growing old in contrast to something that's going to endure. We can also see that the finite nature of creation is compared to an unshakable kingdom that is to come. So we can see in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 26, which says, And his voice shook the earth then, and now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. That's Hebrews 12, verses 26 through 28. So there we can contrast the future kingdom that is unshakable with the present heavens and the earth, the created things that are going to be removed. So there we have the finite nature of the original creation, just as we have in our passage. We have the finite nature of the original creation that is perishing and is going to be changed. We can also see the theme of the enduring years of the Lord, the never-ending years of Jesus, that are stated in a variety of passages in Hebrews. Like Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, because Jesus will endure and his years will not come to an end. This is also used to plant the seeds in regard to the priesthood of Jesus. The effectiveness of Jesus as a high priest is made specifically because Jesus now possesses indestructible life. So Jesus has the power of indestructible life, according to Hebrews 7, verses 16 through 17, and it says that it was attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, is able to contrast the finite, perishing nature of the heavens and the earth that were already created with the enduring life in the unending years of Jesus. Now, Ken 
Shinek, who is the author of the book, Understanding the Book of Hebrews, makes most of these particular seeds that are planted, and he concludes the following, and I think his quote is very interesting. So Ken says, quote, the focus of the psalm quotation in Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12, is not on Christ's role as creator, but on the fact that he remains enthroned forever, end quote. He says that in his book, Understanding the Book of Hebrews, page 53, and I think that's right. I think he has accurately demonstrated that because the quotation is setting out these future themes, that the function of the quotation is not on creator. The function is on the fact that Jesus is going to remain enthroned forever. I think this is a good point, and it nicely parallels the point of the former citation from the Old Testament in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, to where the throne is going to endure forever. Let's move to our fifth and final point, which is the function of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 within the overarching argument. Now, the argument that the author of Hebrews has been working on with his many citations of Scripture, beginning all the way back in verse 5, is that Jesus is greater than the heavenly angels. Now, how does our reading of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, fit into that argument? And how does it fit into the context of Hebrews chapter 1? So by citing Psalm 102, the author is able to speak of the enduring nature of Jesus, the one who will remain and whose years will not come to an end. This contrasts the angels, who, according to Hebrews 1.7, are fleeting flames of fire. They are temporary. They are finite in nature. Jesus endures while the angels are temporary. And this, of course, makes Jesus greater than the angels. The citation of Psalm 102 also regards the subject as the Lord. Now, I'm going to make a suggestion here that this Lord is most likely to be understood as a title, a title that was given to Jesus. Now, there's a very interesting parallel in Acts 2, verses 34 through 35, where God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. This happened at Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' exaltation to heaven. Now, it's not surprising that the very next passage that the author of Hebrews is going to cite in his argument in chapter 1, specifically in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, is Psalm 110, verse 1, where Jesus is the exalted Lord seated at the right hand of God. So by calling Jesus Lord in Hebrews 1, verse 10, this helps anticipate and set the stage for his depiction in Hebrews 1.13. That also indicates that Jesus has this title as a result of his exaltation and enthronement to heaven. And the heavenly enthronement of Jesus has been the main argument of Hebrews chapter 1 all along, starting from verse 5, spanning all the way to verse 13. 
It's the heavenly exaltation of Jesus. It's the heavenly enthronement of Jesus. And that is what makes Jesus greater than the heavenly angels. So I suggest that these functions, namely the enduring life of Jesus that makes him greater than the temporary angels, and the lordship of Jesus that he has received as a result of his exaltation to heaven, these are the intended arguments of the author of the book of Hebrews, inciting Psalm 102 into Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. So, in conclusion, we have observed that, well, I'm going to offer five points, five suggestions of things that I think are worthy of consideration. Again, I'm not going to sit here and to say that I am completely right and people that disagree with me are wrong. I'm suggesting here the reasons that currently persuade me and we'll find out if they're persuasive to other people. So the first conclusion is that Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 consists of a quotation of the Greek version of Psalm 102, which is a passage where the subject's enduring days are contrasted with the limited duration of the present heavens and earth. While creation will perish, the subject will never come to an end. This citation serves as a way to depict Jesus as greater than the angels, who were previously described in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, as fleeting and temporary. Number two, the arguments that seek to make the Father the subject of Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12, do not hold up to scrutiny, nor do they fit into the context of the author's argument. Interpretations that suggest that the heavens and the earth mentioned in the citation are actually the new heavens and the new earth of the new creation fail to take seriously the clear statement that the heavens and the earth will perish and that they will come to change. Number three, one possible way to understand the position of Jesus as the one who laid the foundations of the earth is to see this statement in light of the wisdom Christology already exhibited in the opening three verses of the book of Hebrews. There is even evidence that similar language was used to draw upon other Old Testament depictions of God creating through his wisdom in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. And the New Testament authors have now understood Jesus as the embodiment of God's wise wisdom. Number four, the quotation of Psalm 102 into Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, almost certainly was intended to plant theological seeds for upcoming arguments in the narrative of Hebrews. The former creation is growing old, like the old covenant is growing old. The old creation will be removed, just as it is said later in the narrative in anticipation for a new, unshakable kingdom. The mentioning of the enduring and never-ending years of the Lord anticipates the indestructible life possessed by Jesus and his unending priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek. And number five, the attribution of the title Lord to Jesus in Hebrews 1.10 is probably 
a reference to the title he received at his exaltation to God's right hand, as the subsequent quotation in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 will clearly indicate. So in sum, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10 through 12 is not a Yahweh text used for Jesus. Instead, it is a passage that serves to highlight the unending life Jesus acquired in his being raised from the dead by the only true God. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we look at how Psalm 8 is used in Hebrews chapter 2 and what the use of Psalm 8 means for the Christology of the book of Hebrews. Please look forward to our next episode. That will be episode 192. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a donation, there is a link to PayPal in the notes of this podcast. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am your host, Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks, please take care.